Hi, I'm Paul Cuddehy and welcome to the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. And I'm Molly Williams. Join us as we take you on a musical journey of 40 years, 14 albums, countless great songs, and lots of great Duran Duran memories. From the band's self-titled debut album in 1981, through to the Paper Gods release in 2015, and, fingers crossed, a new album in 2021, the Duran Duran Albums podcast celebrates each of the studio albums while telling the story of the band. We chat through each album track by track, pick some of our favourite songs and memories from when the album was first released, and ask podcast listeners to give us their thoughts on each record. And we'll also have interviews with other Duran Duran fans throughout the course of this series, as well as extra episodes on everything from non-album songs, favourite gigs and the band's various side projects. So while you might want to save a prayer till the morning after, listen to the podcast now. Subscribe, spread the word, and celebrate 40 years of great music on the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. Jason Lent, DJ photographer, music writer. Welcome to the Duran Duran Albums podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I've been following it. Even before you did the first episode, I heard the preview and I was like, oh, this is something I really can't wait to listen to. And it's been great so far. Excellent. And can I just say right at the start that I haven't paid you to say that? And it's just very I have nice not been you. paid at all. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people might know you, certainly on Twitter, Velvet Rebel Music. So a lot of people might and I'll be able to put a voice to the Twitter feed. We're obviously going to be chatting about Duran Duran in the course of this podcast. This is going to go out at the time of the Big Thing episode. We'll get some thoughts on that. And of course, at the end, I'll put you on the spot for your top three. But I was going to just kind of take you back in terms of your your love of Duran Duran, and then obviously then go on to your, your love of music. So obviously music plays a big part in your life. When did the, the love of Duran Duran start for you? Uh, pretty much as soon as I turned on MTV as a child. Um, and I know Molly talked about the the impact of videos over here in the States. I was a pretty young kid when MTV started. I was nine when it went on the air. So I didn't have an older sibling uh, to show me music. I wasn't listening to radio. It really was my first experience discovering music was visual through the MTV. And uh, I would sit there for hours and I was just obsessed with videos. Uh, Devo had some really groundbreaking stuff. Adam Ant, for whatever reason, Past the Duchy by Musical Youth was a big one for me. Uh, but the Duran Duran videos were obviously just a cut above. And uh, obviously the budget was a little bigger with the Rio stuff. But even the early stuff, Planet Earth was absolutely amazing. Girls on Film, I don't remember seeing on MTV as much. Obviously it was uh, banned for a while and they had to do a different edit and stuff. But once Hungry Like the Wolf, Rio and all that. I mean, they were in constant rotation. They were they were just different. They were different than what my parents were listening to. They had a unique style. Uh, so I just gravitated to them. It was really them, Howard Jones and Thompson Twins were the three that I found myself liking the best. But Duran Duran was far and away the biggest. And, you know, I had the members only jacket with 120 pins. And I was walking around the mall thinking I was the coolest kid in the world. But for me, it was Duran Duran. They introduced me to rock and roll. So uh, they've always stayed a big part of my life. Because one of the things, and I think I've mentioned it on the, the podcast and uh, other episodes, is I think it's only having met Molly and starting doing the podcast and then speaking to other people, a lot of people in the States who are big fans, that I've, I've really become aware of 
A, how massive the band were and are in the States, but also how important those videos played and MTV played and boosting them and making them kind of a, a global phenomenon, but certainly this massive band in the States. I don't think maybe people in, in Scotland quite appreciated. No, um, MTV, when it started, there was, I mean, it, nothing had existed like that. I mean, you have Top of the Pops and Old Grey Whistle Test and shows like that, but we didn't over here and videos were just it was something new. And when you're young to be able, you know, cable television was new. So to be able to sit in front of your television, there's all these new channels and there was just nonstop videos and it was just nonstop. There wasn't reality programming or anything from 82 to 85. It was really just videos. And it was like watching a radio station. So I think most kids my age, that's how we were discovering music and the way the music was presented visually uh, really impacted how we grew up. I mean, bands like Duran Duran, you know, the way they dressed, the fact that they could wear makeup and color the hair and stuff. As a kid growing up, when you're supposed to be, you know, a tough, rugged guy, for example, who's going to go out and play soccer, you know, you're watching a different presentation of how gender can be. And it kind of opened your mind and made you more excited to discover new things. So uh, I think MTV played a huge part in influencing my generation. And, you know, Duran Duran really were the best at video. So uh, a lot of us just, could not take our eyes away from that. And uh, I mean, the music holds up. I mean, people are going to argue still to this day, they're just a pretty band, but they're not. I mean, the, the musical talent there is just unbelievable. I mean, from John Taylor's bass lines to what Nick could do with atmosphere. I mean, obviously without the music, whether they were good looking or not, wouldn't have mattered. So videos were great because it brought us in, but it was the music that kept us around and, you know, kept us going all the way through the 90s. I mean, we're still here after Pop Trash. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's been 40 years. But I, we, when we were doing the, the episode on Rio and it came to New Religion, and my point on that is kind of like what you were saying is that sometimes they were dismissed in terms of their image. You know, it was style over substance, which has always annoyed me. My argument would be go and listen to New Religion and then come back and speak about a band who, you know, as musicians. That, and that song, and that was very early in their career. That's just mm -hmm. one song. And Nick was still, Nick Rhodes was still a teenager at the time when they wrote that song. And it's extraordinary. That song, especially, uh, I've been going back to a lot lately. I actually, my last DJ said I did the night version of New Religion. And then I dropped in a Simon Spoken Word piece, God. And uh, I started pretty early in the song, but it he does all of God. And it finishes right before the chorus kicks in because the night version is very long instrumental. And it worked. But, you know, just listening to it without the lyrics and how well they play on that song. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And I don't think I fully appreciate how good they were as kids as I got older and became a musician myself and tried to learn the John Taylor bass lines on bass. I just shook my head. I'm like, I can't do this. I think not in terms of even musicianship. I just try and remember what I was like when I was 18 or 19. <laughs> and, you know, my head was just scrambled. I wouldn't have been able, capable of anything, never mind producing <laughs> this record that 40 years later, people are still talking as a, as a classic mm -hmm. album. I mean, it has that energy, the energy of youth. They were still young. They were excited. They were going for it. And, you know, it still comes through on that record. I mean, I can't wait. Today is the day I get my delivery of the Rio book that Andy Zaleski just wrote. So the rest of my day is going to be spent reading that because it's so fun to go back to that album. As soon as I saw that on Twitter, I was really excited. And, and I've spoke to Annie for the podcast as well. And I think it's a brilliant thing in that kind of prestigious label for her to, to write about that album. And I think it gives... A sort of credit, a musical credibility, I think, to yeah. Duran Duran and the Rio album. Yeah, that's an academic series. I've actually pitched an album to 33 and a third. It hasn't been accepted, but 
actually talking to Annie and seeing that she was pitching it since 2007 gives me a little more hope that, you know, my one year of trying wasn't enough. So uh, the album I'm going to do, I'm going to go back to and uh, polish it up a bit and send it off again. And maybe I'll get published someday. Yeah, I'll not, I'll not ask you to reveal it just in case MD's listening and going, that's a great idea. I'm going to take that. <laughs> one thing I should say, and it's, it's, it's slightly disappointing, I think, that people are only listening to us because, you know, like when you see people on Zoom and there's that backdrop. So my backdrop is books, which is probably my great love. But I love the backdrop in your camera, which is just vinyl records, which, again, for somebody growing up in the 80s, vinyl was just, there was something special about it. The artwork of the sleeves, just the, there was something substantial in your hand. So I think just seeing all those vinyl records behind you, it looks amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I grew up, very close to the cassette vinyl borderline. So I bought a few records as a kid. Then I started buying cassettes, but I always bought the Duran Duran vinyl. Uh, just the 12 inches, the artwork alone was reason enough to buy them. I sold them when I was at university just to make some money. And then I've gone back and I started collecting vinyl again. And I ended up, I bought every single thing I could get my hands on. So I think I have just about every 12 inch, at least up to uh, Liberty. And then, um, you know, I've been able to track down Red Carpet Massacre on vinyl, Astronaut. Still looking for a wedding album. Uh, there's one actually for sale right now in the UK, but it's in poor condition. So I'm going to hold off for now. But it's something about putting on the record. You put it on, it's physical. You have to get up, turn it over. So you have to engage it. Yeah, I've got, I've actually got a copy of the vinyl copy of, of the wedding album in the oh. house here. If you want to send that to me as a thank you, I would be more than willing to. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, when, when you're over when you're over in, in the UK going to uh, watch West Ham United, then give me a shout. Absolutely. Because <laughs> I'd said to Molly, I'd, a lot of my vinyl I gave away within the last year or two, just to friends that still played vinyl. But Duran Duran albums were the ones that I, I kept for kind of sentimental reasons. Yeah, I moved here in 2010 after touring with a band called Cowboy Junkies. And uh, at the end of the tour, they gave me a couple of their vinyl that they had signed for me. And I was like, all right, I'll buy a turntable. Let's be fun to listen to them on vinyl. And it just grew from there. And as you can see behind me, uh, it's a bit out of control. But, you know, I love having records. Yeah. I mean, I said, you know, at the start, music seems to have played a really important part in, in your life, obviously, from when you start listening to music. But just even in terms of what you've done, you know, you mentioned you were in a band, you've photographed concerts, you've, you've written about music quite a lot as well. And then obviously, you know, very much, you know, as a DJ, you're based in Vegas. You've been doing a lot, certainly over that, I'm guessing, over the last year with the uh, kind of restrictions, doing a lot of online uh, sets, which has attracted the attention of no less a band than Duran Duran. Yeah, uh, it blows my mind. Um, you know, I was, I was writing for uh, Hard Rock's website, the uh, restaurant hotel brand. Uh, we did a music blog at Hard Rock and I got to cover a Duran Duran show and I reviewed it a few years ago here in Vegas. And they must have liked the review because they shared that on their social media, which was just a thrill as a, you know, a fan from being back in the day as a little kid, see them, see something I did was really special. And then, you know, I started writing for Daily Durani, uh, Rhonda and Amanda, two of the best Duran Duran fans you could ever meet. Uh, just, they get the music and I've always been impressed by what they write about. So I started writing for them once a week. They kind of squeezed me in as a quote unquote intern. And we started doing these online shows and, you know, the man's been very gracious. Uh, they really support Daily Durani. They actually, Roger just sent a message to them, a little voice message thanking them. And um, <clears throat> we started doing these online parties on Twitch and it's really taken off. And the last show we did, we had people watching from 
Hungary, Argentina, Australia, all over the world. And it's fun to go back and revisit all the songs. If you hear a DJ playing Duran Duran these days, it's probably going to be Hungry Like the Wolf or something. And it's a lot more fun to go back and really dig into the catalog and, you know, mix up, you know, Friends of Mine or Sound of Thunder and things like that, that really get people thinking back to all the great, great Duran Duran songs. Uh, my wife and I were on holiday in, in Lanzarote just a couple of years ago, and it was a hotel and they had a disco at the end of the night for people who just didn't want to turn the night to end early. But there was only a handful of people that would go. So sometimes it kind of felt like your own personal disco. So I, I always remember requesting pressure off. And it was brilliant, just, it was just me and my wife dancing to it. And I thought, this is heaven. Yeah, I mean, it's so much fun. Uh, we discovered a club in New York City a few years ago, and it was pretty much empty, but it was an old club. I guess it's fairly famous in the uh, East Village, but they were doing Depeche Mode night. And, you know, they were playing Depeche Mode and Duran Duran. And there was like six people there and me and my wife on holiday. And I was like, we're going on the dance floor. And it's just so much fun. It's like, I remember this. I remember dancing. So let's have some fun. And who cares how old we are? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, has it been a challenge for you, particularly in terms of the DJing over the past year, year and a half, given everything that's been going on in the world? Well, that's, you know, um, Vegas shut down and I was furloughed from my job for a while. And that's what really got me going with it. I'd only done a handful of gigs here in Vegas before that. One was a Brits in Vegas uh, Christmas party. There's a big expat community here from the UK. So uh, we had a holiday party and I got to DJ that. So I learned a lot about some Christmas music from the UK, Wizard and uh, obviously Shaky Stevens and people like that. So that was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, once I got furloughed, you know, sitting around the house, you, you're looking for things to do. So, you know, I learned the technology on Twitch and started doing DJing and people pop in and, you know, it's been really rewarding. Uh, I've played in bands and I'm a terrible musician. So uh, this is a little more what I'm good at. Yeah. And as you say, that I think the fact that, you know, you're getting people tuning in from all over the world, which is nice as well. I've always think that's one of the great things about music is that can unite people. So you're in Vegas and I'm in Glasgow. The technology brings us together, but it's also music that kind of brings us together as well. The music between us. I think a band sang that one. <laughs> <laughs> people might almost think that we practice that. <laughs> <laughs> totally unrehearsed. I do have some notes here on Big Thing, but that's all I prepared. Well, in terms of, you know, I, when we were speaking beforehand and I said we would be talking around about the time when we were, we were discussing Big Thing, and that's quite an important album for you in terms of your Duran journey. Because you did say when, when, I, when you wrote to me, uh, when we were corresponding, that you, you were still from 1984, still upset that your parents didn't let you see Duran Duran at the time because it was a school night. Yeah, it was, uh, I believe it was a Tuesday night in March of 84. Uh, they came down to South Florida and it was a school night and the venue was a terrible old arena. It was a one lane highway to get there. It was, it was a really difficult journey. So I understand why my parents might not have wanted me to go. They made it up to me in 85. They took me to see Power Station. So that was my first actual concert, but I still hadn't seen Duran Duran. Uh, the Notorious Strange Behavior Tour didn't loop into my area. So the Big Thing Tour was my first opportunity. So, you know, we got to go. It was a new arena. It was a lot nicer. And obviously the crazy excitement of the 84 Tour wasn't quite there yet, but it was still a blast to see them and to finally be able to see them live. And then I got to see them a couple of times on the uh, Wedding Album Tour, which was really cool. Because one of the things, and again, I, it was almost like a confession I made that, and I, I've wrote about it in, in, on my website, that back in 82, when they were doing the Rio tour in the UK, it was at the same time, I think they came to Glasgow a week before ABC. And at the time, I could only afford to go to one concert, and all my pals were going to ABC. So I went to ABC, and to this day, I always think, you know, it slightly grates on me, although 
have then been able to see Duran Duran every time they've came to Glasgow. And ABC were, you know, I think they've reformed now, but they were here today, gone tomorrow. So I have to balance it by saying, well, I, you know, I was always going to get to see Duran Duran at some point. And you get to see ABC during the look of love time, which that's not something to be ashamed of. That's pretty awesome. It's, you no, know, had I, you said Spandau Ballet, I might've given you some, some great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, I mean, to be fair, ABC, and that is a great album. One of the best albums. I mean, anything yeah. Trevor touches was incredible back then. I mean, in terms of big thing, and I was, I've been listening to it quite a bit just ahead of our chat. And what I've loved about starting this podcast with Molly is just going back and not just listening to the music again, but listen to it and really focusing on it, you know, rather than it just being there in, in the background. And I think, I mean, I, I don't know what you think of Big Thing album. I think it's, I think it's a great album. I think maybe underrated and maybe goes under the radar a wee bit. Yeah, I, th- I think it was a weird time in music. I think the band kind of, they established themselves as a more serious, they really put their talent forward on Notorious. And I think the record label sort of like Skin Trade, Meet El President, they didn't chart as high maybe. So I think the record label panicked a bit and said, you know, we have this band that we've been making so much money off of. And I don't think they knew how to market big thing. And I think that's really why I didn't get the attention it deserved. I mean, you know, they used that Crush Brothers moniker to throw off DJs and critics early when they sent out uh, the LSD edit, trying to be something that they weren't. Uh, and that was all record label band, bands don't think of that stuff. And Thompson Twins had to do the same thing. They released that great song, Come Inside, but it was sent to DJs as a band called Feedback Max. And it's almost like the labels were like, oh, we don't know how to market this, so we'll just give it a different name and maybe it'll catch on. And everything about Big Thing works. I mean, if you had just given it the proper marketing and support, I think people would realize, damn, this band can play. They're writing great songs. The drums on I Don't Want Your Love, Big Thing, Steve Ferrone brought so much to that. I know Sterling Campbell plays on some songs and eventually joined the band on a full-time basis. But for me, uh, Steve on drums is up there with Tony Thompson. And I think I Don't Want Your Love is one of the band's best tracks in terms of drums. I don't know. It seemed to me like it should have been a bigger hit album. I am one of those people, though. There's one song I would change on it, and that is uh, either version of Drug just doesn't work for me. And then they have this B-side, I Believe All I Need to Know, uh, which might be one of the most beautiful songs the band's ever written. Uh, I was just listening to it again last night and I just shake my head. I'm like, how did that not make the final cut? If that was on the album, I'd probably put Big Thing in my three favorite albums of all time from Duran Duran. Which is funny. I, I was speaking to David Orwick, David O, who's, you know, guy fans of Duran on Twitter. Oh, yeah. and, and that was, that that song was one of his top three. And and then when you, as you say, when you listen to it again, you think, wow, that is, that is a, a brilliant song. But I, I'm always interested as well that, you know, the way an album starts, the first two or three songs. And, and I, oh, yeah. I, thought, I thought that but even with the first album as a new band, that's it was really three strong songs in their first album. I think on Big Thing, you know, you've got Big Thing, I Don't Want Your Love, All She Wants Is. It's just like boom, boom, boom. And you're, yeah. you know, if you're not taken after those first three songs, I'm not sure, you know. I'm and sure I wonder sometimes to. the Big Thing's uh, seven inch edit was a lot more dancey and pop. I wonder if people may have been more receptive to the album if it opened with that instead of the more rockin' version on the album. Personally, I like the version on the album. I think it, you know, just the opening snare intro, it just, you immediately have to pay attention. And then the way the album ends on a snare hit and just disappears quickly. I mean, the beginning and the end of the album are really something unique. And the stuff in between, there's so much great stuff. Too Late Marlene, you know, Palomino. There's some beautiful, more atmospheric ballads in there, but you still have their 
high energy dance stuff. All she wants is, I mean, the video alone makes me love that song, but I think it's a great, great club song. So it, it's weird that that album doesn't get more attention. I feel like people do appreciate Notorious for as great as it is. And maybe because now Rogers is involved and there wasn't any big names, so to speak, and big thing. But I think this is one of those albums when people go back and listen to, it's going to be like, oh, wow, why didn't I give this more of my attention back then? Because this is a great record. Because I, I think as well, do you believe in shame? And I remember seeing, there was a, some UK, I think it was in the UK, there was a program where it was partly a documentary there talking about the music, but then they were playing on almost acoustic set and they played a version of that and it was just stunning. And and I think that is a, I think that's a really moving song. And I slightly laughed that I've said in the podcast previously about where I think about lyrics, I think the music, the kind of melody that has to, that has to stand up for me. But I think lyrically, do you believe in shame? It's a really strong lyric from Simon. Yeah, I think that second side of the record is uh, one of the best sides the band ever did because it kind of captures everything they can do from that, you know, emotional ballad to the rockin' Edge of America. I mean, there's so much great stuff there. And, uh, you know, I don't know if a lot of people at the time even made it to this. I guess it would have been a cassette, even flip the cassette over, listen to the first two or three songs. And that's as far as they got, because there's a lot there. And, you know, I think the Duran community has come around and I think most of us who have stuck with Duran Duran know what a great record it is. It's just a matter of whether at the time people really gave the attention it deserved. And a lot of us were different points in our life. You know, we had gone through that exciting phase with Duran Duran. Then we were getting older. I know my taste at that time. You know, I looked back at my concert tickets. I've seen George Michael, Madonna, but I was also seeing White Snake and David Lee Roth. And I was getting into Cowboy Junkies at the time and shifting more to folk and blues and stuff. So there was a lot more stuff happening music-wise, so maybe we didn't give it all the attention it deserved. Because I wonder as well, you know that way, kind of what you were touching on, that when a band, especially when they explode onto the scene, and there's a certain look and a certain feel and a certain sound, and then they're, they're starting to evolve, and as you say, that their audience is getting older. Some of the audience want more of the same, but I think in order for a band to survive and for Duran Duran to still be here 40 years later, they had to accept that they were going to evolve but there might be some casualties in terms of people they, they lose along the way in terms of fans. And that's why maybe, maybe Big Thing at the time didn't because it was, it was again, it was, it was taking them on in a different way than maybe people, I think people kept for a while kept wanting the next Rio. Why can't they go back to make Rio again? And the band, I think they were smart enough to realise we can't do that. We need to keep evolving. Otherwise, after a certain point, that's probably why a lot of bands just run out of steam and give up. Uh, I totally agree. I think uh, as Neil from the Pet Shop always coined the term imperial phase and, you know, the band's imperial phase in terms of commercial success where nothing could be done wrong kind of ended with Notorious. And this was the first step to being a band beyond an imperial phase. And I think the bands that try to keep chasing that, that wave of fame that they rode is, you know, destined to fail. You have to grow as artists, you have to grow as people, you know, you can't write about the same stuff over and over again. I mean, I mean, the blueprint for this is David Bowie. I mean, you know, from his first album to his last album, the amount of change that happened is just astounding. And, you know, I think that's kind of the template for most artists to follow. I mean, Roxy Music, another big influence on Duran Duran, they were never static and they were always evolving. And, you know, that's what bands need to do. I mean, I think it'd be really weird for them to keep trying to write Planet Earth over and over again. And I think I would lose interest and I would think most of the fan base would too. Because it's why I always think there's a reason why there's so few bands last that length of time so 40 years but not only that are still writing new music and fans are as excited for the, the new single and the new album that's coming out as they are to listen back to to the old music because they're constantly challenging themselves and, and a few people have said 
and you you probably know more you know better than me in terms of you know just how immersed you are in music but quite a few people have said to me that are they are a band who are so into music and into what's current and always want to listen to new things because they want to be influenced by new things and i think you, you hear that with each new album that they bring out yeah absolutely i mean red carpet massacre which i know is taking a beating from some people uh, is one where they were definitely kind of Timberland and Timberlake and people like that were influencing them. And, you know, that shows that they're aware of what's happening. Uh, even uh, the last one, Paper Gods, very influenced what, what was happening with contemporary music and stuff. And interesting, because like now Rogers, he was kind of coming back into fashion again, if you will, between Daft Punk and other artists he was working with. So for him to rejoin with Duran Duran just made sense, kind of brought both of them current again. And it's going to be interesting to see what they do next. I mean, the fact that Giorgio Moroder is involved with it gets me very excited because the best moments for me with Duran Duran is where the disco meets the rock and like, you know, that rough guitar edge that Andy Taylor brought to the band meets the four on the floor disco rhythms that Roger can lay down. And, you know, it's rock, but it's dance. And I think that's where the magic happens. If they go too far in either direction, it doesn't have the magic that is Duran Duran. I think for fans as well, it's always, because it's, it's been a while since Paper Gods came out I think there is that, that sense of anticipation and excitement, probably a slight trepidation as well, because you, you, you desperately want to, to like the new music. But the fact that there is new music to look forward to, I think that's, that's a great thing in their 40th year. Yeah. And I mean, I understand the delay and I, bands these days, they have to tour. You know, your income is basically based on touring revenue because people aren't buying albums like they used to. I mean, people like us will order the <clears throat> deluxe vinyl box set or whatever it is that's available. But for the most part, people are just going to stream it and bands aren't getting paid by streaming. So, you know, they need to get on the road and, you know, the excitement of a new record, if there's no tour dates for a year after it's released, it's going to start to lose some steam. So I think they're wise in holding back towards the end of this year. You know, when we start to get back to normal in this world and they can hit the road now, that's the time to jump on it, get the new album out, get on the road and, you know, hopefully, you know, challenge themselves with the set list. It's such a difficult thing for bands like Duran Duran. I mean, how much of the set list do you have to play all the greatest hits from over the years and how much new material can you put in? I mean, people listening to this podcast, people like us, you know, we want to hear some of the deeper cuts, but probably 80% of an audience is there to hear Hungry Like the Wolf and A View to a Kill. And you kind of have to play those. You could always be like The Cure and do a 35 song set, which I would be fine with, but I don't think that's what Duran Duran's going to intend to do. I mean, it's going to be about a 15 song set. So uh, finding that balance night to night is probably a challenge for them. Yeah, as you say, because I, I think, you know, whenever you go to, to one of their gigs, there are certain songs that I think people expect for them to play. And I think, you know, again, they're smart enough to realise that there are certain ones that they just could not, probably, probably couldn't get away without playing. But I think because of, you know, just how much music there is there, I think it's good if they can just occasionally produce a gem that maybe we haven't heard for years. It's nice when it suddenly... First, you might not recognize it, and you go, Oh my goodness, they're playing that live again. I think that's the, I suppose that's the beauty of having this body of work behind them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you know, I know for, for myself, I, I bought a ticket to an as Duran Duran show I wasn't going to go to because I think it was friends of mine had creeped back into the set list recently. Uh, because they do play Vegas an awful lot. I think since Paper Gods came out, I think I've seen them eight or nine times, almost all in Vegas, uh, just because they keep coming through here and doing two nights back to back. Uh, so I was kind of getting burnt out on the same set, but then they, they throw in one of those old ones. You're like, oh, I'm going to have to buy tickets. I don't, I, I <laughs> might be my only chance to hear this live. Is there one of the hits that you would drop from the set list if you could? Do you know the, the Wild Boys actually? Wild Boys. It's not one of my favorites. I don't know. I've, I've, 
I actually prefer it live to actually the the record. But I'd be okay if they dropped that for something else. If I was forced to choose, what about you? Don't hate me, but I would drop Ordinary World in a heartbeat. I, I understand the importance of the song because it brought them back. But to me, Ordinary World is a really beautiful song, but almost any band could have recorded it. I mean, it's to me, it's just a great song that anyone could have made a hit out of. It doesn't have that Duran Duran alchemy that I look for. You know, for me, I'd rather hear Save a Prayer or Seventh Stranger, songs like that. If you have to do the slow ballad in the middle of the set. Uh, for me, Ordinary World just has never been one I'm blown away by, but I think I'm in a very tiny minority with that. So I accept that we have to go. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's uh, controversial. I think most people, because that's one of the, you know, certainly when the, the wedding album brought them back to the fore, I suppose, and that was a song that was a massive hit for them. Oh, yeah. And I remember hearing it on the radio. I remember exactly where I was. To hear them on the radio in the early 90s was unusual. I was driving back in Florida. I was going back from university and Literally, I remember crossing the railroad tracks near this road called Dixie Highway, and it came on the radio, and I was like, oh, dude, this guy. And you instantly, like, this song's going to be a huge hit, and it was. I mean, like, all right, Duran Duran's back. That's interesting. I'd be interested to see what, well, that's, that's actually a really good question, to see what choice people would make on, on that track, because it is so difficult. You can almost feel like you're betraying a favorite, a favorite song if you say, no, I'd drop that one. Once they get back on the road again, it'll be interesting to see what they do, put as as the, the set list. And do we do a Rio set? I mean, it's the anniversary and, you know, a lot of bands have done that, you know, play Rio in its entirety and then do an encore with maybe six or seven other hits, some new material. It'd be interesting. They've never done the album show necessarily. You know, I think they did play all of Red Carpet Massacre at one point, but I think if they wanted to just sell out every arena in America, they could just say we're playing a Rio in its entirety and people would spend any amount of money to hear it. It's interesting was it a couple of years ago, uh, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark were doing a, a tour in the UK and what they would do before, so when they, before they played Glasgow, a couple of days beforehand on their Twitter feed, they gave fans a choice of three, basically three album tracks and said, what one would you like us to play? And then you would vote for it and then they would say, right, you know, it's such and such a song, she's leaving or whatever. So they played they play that at Glasgow and then they might play a different one. They've obviously got a batch, but it just gives people that sense of, contributing to the, the set list and get a and it rewards people for going to multiple shows um you know i i've seen cowboy junkies over 120 times i i've seen them a lot i remember one california run we went through california and i went to all eight shows and i i kept track of the set list and at the end of the eight show run they had played 77 different songs for a band to take out 75 plus songs on a tour is just unheard of but it, it's exciting for a fan not knowing what's next. I mean, these days you can look up set list and you kind of know what a band's playing on a tour. To go into a show and have no idea what you're going to hear is always exciting to me. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up OMD. I am huge OMD fan, uh, but I wasn't in the 80s. I mean, I appreciated them. If You Leave is my from Pretty in Pink, my favorite film. But over the last few years, I mean, their last three records, I think are three of their best albums ever, especially the last one, Punishment of Luxury. And I've seen them a few times in recent years and the energy and the excitement they bring, they're one of the best live bands going on that 80s from all those 80s bands. Do you know, it's funny, you know, you were saying you remember, you can remember where you are or you were when you heard certain songs. I remember being at a party in 1981 when someone played, one of the guys at the party had got the seven inch of electricity oh. and, and just said, I've got this new song and he put it on and it was like, I think from that moment it changed how I, I listened to music. It was suddenly from that moment, that was the kind of music. Because from those first few bursts, and I thought, what on earth is this? And it was just extraordinary. And I saw them 
loads of times in the 80s. And I was lucky enough to, to interview Andy McCluskey about five years ago through my work. And it was the greatest, it was, honestly, it was the greatest <laughs> thrill. It was partly to do with football because his grandfather had connections to Celtic. But we, we just we were talking about music as well. And just, you know, I, th- I think they're an incredible band. And I totally agree with you. I think they've really rediscovered their sound. And I think maybe because they're not thinking about the commercial side of it, they're just doing what they yeah. want to do. But as a result, I think it's more popular. Yeah, I, I think the craft work influence is a little more prominent. And I, I think that's wonderful that they embrace that. And, you know, that was a band that we didn't get here in the States. Um, I don't remember seeing them on MTV in the early 80s. It wasn't really until If You Leave Broke that OMD really became part of our, you know, day-to-day music life. You know, certain bands just didn't get over here as quick as they were in the UK. Uh, Spandau Ballet, I mean, we had True and, you know, that era, but that first album by them is actually quite a great new romantic album, but they weren't over here yet for us. We didn't see them commercially, uh, whereas Adam Ant was here from the beginning, so... We still love Adam Ant. And you prefer Pretty in Pink to The Breakfast Club, for example? Uh, yeah. And would you believe I didn't see The Breakfast Club until last year? Really? <laughs> I, and I love the Brad Pack films, but I just watched Pretty in Pink over and over again. To me, that was always the soundtrack. I think it's, you know, for me, the greatest soundtrack I've ever heard. I mean, you look who's on it from The Smiths to New Order uh, to OMD in excess. I mean, it's just top to bottom, a great album. And, you know, for me, that was the movie that clicked. But I finally did get around to watching. Oh, no, it wasn't Breakfast Club. I'm sorry. It was 16 Candles I just watched. But yeah, either way, Breakfast Club and 16 Candles, for me, they're not even in the same ballpark as uh, Pretty in Pink. I mean, I, I love the Breakfast Club. I, I love Pretty in Pink as well. But, I, you know, the fact that Simple Minds, which is a great Scottish band, were on Breakfast Club, I, I, I kind of have a slight affection for that. So I woke up about two hours ago and I woke up to, hey, 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 don't you forget about me. It's on a random playlist in my alarm. And that's what kicked off this morning. I was like, well, that's kind of appropriate. It makes sense. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, and that's think- another band, Simple Minds. Their early stuff is absolutely phenomenal. And we didn't we didn't have it over here. Don't you forget about me, Alive and Kicking, Sanctify Myself. Those are the hits I remember being on MTV and the radio. But the early stuff is really interesting and groundbreaking. I mean, and again, I think the... Kind of similar to OMD, I think, not quite lost away, but they've kind of, the last couple of albums, they've kind of refound their sound, as it were, probably for the same reasons that they're just doing what they want to do now. And yeah, uh, They came to Vegas about two years ago and I was gutted. It was when I was over in the UK, so I, I missed it. I was actually in London seeing uh, the new version of Spandau Ballet with the, the replacement they briefly had for Tony Hadley, and that didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's because it, funny Gary Kemp's bringing out his own music now, but I, th- I think... A lot of those bands from the 80s, you know, so like Duran Duran are bringing out new music, OMD are bringing out new music. A lot of the bands are, are reforming and kind of just playing to that sense of nostalgia, which is fine because I think sometimes you go and you'll see bands and it takes you back to your youth. But I think the ones that, that you really like are the ones that are still doing something new and it still excites you. Yeah, and I think it's important for the artists to not just go through the motions. I, I think they want to be creative and release new stuff. When Tom Bailey came out of, you know, retirement and, I think it was Howard Jones that kind of talked him into joining a summer tour and he served the response to all the old Thompson Twins hits. Uh, he went in the studio and science fiction is, you know, it's not necessarily a Thompson Twins album because it's just Tom, but uh, it certainly sounds like one and it was great to hear new music from him again. Well, this is the point where I want to put you on the spot and ask you to choose your three, your top three Duran Duran songs. And always, always with the proviso is that I won't hold you to it. And if at some future point you change your mind and I hear you've, you've chosen three different ones, that's perfectly fine. But um, if you've got your, your top three and, and, and the reasons why, you, why you've chosen them. 
I will stand by these. So it's hothead dancephobia. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> can you deal with it? No. Uh, for me, uh, the first two came instantly and I'll always stand by these. Uh, Hold Back the Rain and The Seventh Stranger, which uh, that's not a record that I necessarily adore. I would actually have Notorious and Big Thing over Seven and the Ragged Tiger. But I think The Seventh Stranger's for me, my favorite kind of moving ballad that the band's ever done. And then number three, I, I had a few in mind, but at the end of the day, Girls on Film, the night version, uh, would round out my top three. It's funny when we were when we were discussing the, the Rio album, because Hold Back the Rain, I love the drums, I love Roger's drums and that, but oh, yeah. it, it's, and I'm not sure whether just within the context of that album, it's not one that stands out for me. There's other songs that I would pick, not even just the, the singles, but just even you know, like Lonely in Your Nightmare, Last Chance and the Stay Away. Those would be above Hold Back the Rain for me. Yeah, and it's a rock song, and that's what I love about it. It has that four on the floor beat, but, you know, I'm a rock and roll guy. I mean, I grew up in rock and roll. So, you know, I think that's one of Andy's best songs. And I think Roger on the outro, especially the way he's beating the hell out of the Rototoms and stuff, it's just, that is a rock and roll song. And I like the story behind it. I like that Simon was trying to reach out to John lyrically. I mean, Simon's lyrics can be sometimes a little hard to interpret. I mean, sometimes the words just sound good together, I think. But uh, Hold Back the Rain had some meaning to the band. And to me, that also makes it that much more interesting. But, you know, I just love that song. They played it on a recent run here in Vegas, and I was losing my mind. I was so excited. Uh, Seventh Stranger, you know, that guitar solo by Andy, and much credit to Don Brown. He uh, played that perfectly on the last tour. Uh, when I heard that live, uh, that's a very moving song for me. I that guitar solo just pulls at my heartstrings, and you know, girls on film night version. I'm not choosing it because of the video, but I definitely watched it as a as a kid. Because <laughs> I find because seven and I get tigers quite a it's, fun, it's a funny album for me in a way that I think I probably appreciate it a lot more now than I did at the time. Although I listened to it all the time when it came out, but I, I do think I, I listened to it a bit more discerningly now and appreciating it more. I, I think I have the same experience as you. I mean, at the time, I mean, we, of course we were listening to it. It was a hit album. And, but I remember when you put it on, it was not the remix of the reflex that opened. It was just the studio version, which you can see it wasn't ready to be a single. I, I think it kind of plods along. I mean, it's a good song, but it's not a great song. Union of the Snake, I absolutely adore. And I thought New Moon on Monday was fantastic. Uh, but I don't remember loving everything on that album the same way I loved the debut or Rio. But as I go back and listen to it, you know, Cracks in the Pavement and, you know, I Take the Dice, those songs have aged really well. I think maybe some of the, not discontent, but disappointment lies in the production. It's a very, there's just a lot happening and just really full. And maybe a different producer would pull some of that out and give it a little more space. And I think that you listen to Notorious and even Big Thing, there's a little more space for the music. Everything at On Seven and the Ragged Tiger just sounds like full blare. And, um, you know, for me, that, didn't really work at the time but as i go back i appreciate it and that's one that if the band went back and re-recorded an album i would pick because i think the songs are there it just didn't always get done in the studio the way maybe it could have been uh but they had a lot of things going on in their lives at that time it was a bit of a stressful time and there were some extracurricular activities i know going on so for what it is it works and it was a great album and i enjoy it but uh certainly not on my top three when i go to pull one out of the shelves it's interesting you say that because i because I've thought that about that album. I also think I like Oasis and mm -hmm. Be Here Now, which I think, kind of exactly what you were saying, I think the songs are great on it, but it's just so overproduced that you just kind of almost feel like, just take it back, take a step back. And that's what I feel about Seven of the Ragged Tiger. 
I think it, if it was either re-recorded or just remixed or reproduced, I think I think people would then see the songs more for what they are. And I mean, producer is such a big deal. And with Duran Duran, I find, I think it's best when they have a single producer really taking charge of the production. And um, you see that with All You Need Is Now. I mean, Mark Ronson really set out to do something with the band and they accomplished it. Uh, whereas Paper Gods, there's a lot, you know, Mr. Hudson, uh, now Rogers, uh, Mark Ronson was involved with some of it. For me, the album doesn't have the cohesiveness that, you know, All You Need Is Now does. And I think some of that is the fact there's different producers coming in. It was kind of being born too long. Uh, it took a while to get done. And, you know, the longer you tinker with an album, the more things change from what you originally intended. And that's not always a good thing. I always like bands when they're first starting out because they only have so much money in the studio. So they got to get in and get it done. And I think that pressure sometimes pushes people creatively. But it still, uh, as you say, maybe not in the top three albums, but still still a good album. Yeah, there's really none I would uh, say are disappointing. Pop Trash and Paper Gods, I have some thoughts on, but uh, we can save those for a different episode. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, listen, Jason, it's been a real pleasure chatting to you. And uh, I wish you continued success with, with all, obviously all the, the online DG events. But, and obviously, fingers crossed, before too long, you're actually back in clubs and, and doing it with it with an audience there as well. Yeah, if all goes well, maybe I can fly over to Barcelona next year, catch a Duran Duran show and watch West Ham in the Champions League. That's that. Living the dream. <laughs> Living the dream. So, but thank you so much for having me. Uh, I was thrilled to find your podcast and I've been really enjoying it. And uh, say hello to Molly as well. Thanks for joining us on the Duran Duran Albums podcast. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you can subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us, that will help other Duranis to find us. And of course, if you can spread the word about the podcast, all the better. You can also let us know what you think of the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Albums Duran or email us at durandoran at paulcudahy.com. Join us next time on the podcast. And in the meantime, keep listening to Duran Duran like some new romantic looking for the TV sound.